Before we begin, I would like to offer uh, something of a warning and a, a bit of an assurance to parents in here. Uh, the entirety of this message is going to be concerning some fairly sensitive material. Um, and so I, I know as, as a father of children, I, I always wanted to be aware of that coming into uh, a sermon. So I, I just want to make you aware that we will be talking about those things. And we'll, we're hopefully going to be doing so with clarity and with, with truth. Um, but I, I have no intention of doing so with any sort of graphic description and have tried to word everything that I've worded and, and will hopefully speak in such a way that, uh, that will be child-friendly. So I, I do want to warn you about that, but then give you assurance on, on the other side of that as well. Uh, because we are grateful to have children in our worship with us. The more, the better, and we are happy that they are worshiping with us. On, uh, on January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States voted in favor of a single mother from Texas who was taking that state, and they was taking something else to court, but primarily was over the statutes of that state. The main basis of the lawsuit was that the statutes of Texas violated her rights given to her mostly by the 14th Amendment. And that 14th Amendment was written um, basically under the the guise of the end of slavery, uh, indicating that everyone who is a citizen of the United States, whether naturally born here or uh, being made into a citizen, is due to the rights of all citizens, that, that you can't give two citizens some rights and not others. This was then taken by the Supreme Court and used to secure rights for all citizens for abortion. For 50 years, Roe v. Wade stood as the declaration of the Supreme Court, making it nigh impossible for any sort of restriction on abortion laws by any state to be put in place. This was an abhorrent decision, morally, and from what I understand legally, although I am not a lawyer, which will not be the last time that I say that in this particular setting, was brought to an end on June 24th of this year. The decision of Dobbs versus Jackson is one of the greatest decisions and most important in the history of our country as it brings to an end the prevalence of Roe v. Wade, although it doesn't bring an end to abortion. Uh, it does bring an end to the federal government supporting that and allowing it to go on, and it passes it back down to the states, which is another issue altogether. This is a great victory, and it does not bring an end, but at least brings a win and a victory of a battle in the larger war that we have in ending this horrible and atrocious event that has been a cloud over our country for the better part of 50 years. Somewhere north of 63 million children died under that law, under the allowance of abortion by Roe v. Wade. Since the decision in Dobbs was handed down, uh, the subject has been really hotly debated by many people, debates which, as you well know, produce much more heat than light. And so, because I am, again, not a lawyer, I'm neither disposed nor qualified to give any sort of opinion on, on the way in which that decision was handed down, and, and I don't really care to, what I do care about is for us to rightly understand how Christians ought to respond to the issue of abortion, how we ought to understand where we stand on abortion, where the Bible stands on abortion. And although I do have many opinions on many matters, we're going to try to restrict ourselves to what the Bible has to say because that's what we're here for. So 
while I don't think that talking about the legal status and, and what we do legally from here on out is really worship of a, worthy, of a worship service before God, I do think that it's appropriate and very necessary for us to speak frankly and candidly and openly and properly about what the Bible actually says about abortion and what it might require out of you and I during these times. So simply put, and that's what I'm going to do today. And we're going to start by, by looking at various passages speaking about the Bible and abortion. Well, this comes at a good opportunity for us. We've finished our study through the book of Romans, and we are going to enter into next week our study in the book of Exodus. We rarely take breaks from that except to do like a longer study through something, and, and one-off sermons are not something that we do typically here. This is very odd, I think, in, in my, my years of being a pastor here, uh, coming up on six years. Uh, we, we've done this only a handful of times, and so this just happened to fall at a good space in between two sermon series that we're going to begin. So well, the first thing we want to do is to try to wrap our heads around what the Bible actually says about abortion. The question then comes, does the Bible actually say that abortion is murder? And there's two ways to answer that question. The one is clearly no. It doesn't say those words precisely. It doesn't actually have a, a statement anywhere in it that says killing a child before it is born is abortion and that abortion is murder. It doesn't have a literal declaration of that anywhere. This is oftentimes how we need to talk about biblical commands and their direct application. So in Romans 14 and 15, when we talked about what is commanded specifically in Scripture and then what is a direct application of what's commanded in Scripture, we made sure to mention that direct applications of things from Scripture are just as part of the command as the command itself is. So, for instance, the Bible also never says that disregarding securities and exchange commission laws about insider trading are forbidden. It never says that. Nevertheless, we don't think that it's okay for people to act on information that wasn't public in order to make money on people who didn't have access to that information. We know that it's wrong, and we would rightly say that that is nothing less than stealing from others. Obviously, the United States government thinks that it is something akin to stealing. If people want to say that because the scriptures don't say that you can't embezzle directly, that that means that embezzlement isn't stealing, we would look at them and say, I don't think that you know how to read correctly. Because that's clearly what the prohibition to not steal means, even if it's not laid out that way exactly. And even if first century Christians and, and 13th century Hebrews wouldn't have known what it was to embezzle, nevertheless we do and we can rightly identify it as stealing. So while abortion doesn't have a direct command in Scripture against it, we think that it is directly applicable to the option or to the very legislation against murder. So, is abortion found in Scripture? No, there is no literal command that says that you cannot abort. But yes, there is a direct application of the command to not murder that is found. To kind of piece this together, we need to talk about what murder is and about how we then link it to the image of God made in human beings, placed in human beings, even inside the womb. The first thing to note is that we are made in the image of God. This is directly and distinctly against 
the way that some want to understand what it means to kill people or what it means to kill animals because they say, hey, we're, we're evolving from animals, so killing a person is no different than killing an animal. And you might think, well, what kind of monsters say that? I'm going to give you a, a whole host of people through the 20th century, Margaret Sanger, Hitler, who thought that it was okay because they had the God-given right to do so. Genesis 1 says this, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This was the initial creation of mankind, of Adam and Eve, and we find out not only in the first chapter are they made in the image of God, so they are patterned after God in a distinct way, in a way that no animal, no bird, no fish, no creeping thing is made. They are distinct in that. We also then read in the third chapter that they are depraved. They fall. And this leads to death. A death that is due to every man, woman, and child born because of the curse of Adam. So this might lead you to say, so why is killing wrong? If death is what we're due for sin, why is it wrong to kill somebody and bring about what is actually due? Isn't that just? This leads us to what murder actually is and the reason why murder is so evil. Because murder doesn't just strike at the creation of God. Murder is not just a way to bring about God's justice. But murder is striking at the very image of God himself. In Genesis 9, Murder is prohibited when God speaks to Noah and says this, For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's a lot of killing in the Bible, so you might think that seems to be a bit odd. But God has the right to define when someone should be put to death for the things that they have done. And not following the authorization that God has given in Scripture or through the things that God has authorized to do that. Clearly, the state is one of those things that gets the option of putting people to death. Paul says that the state does not bear the sword in vain. So they have the option, they've been given it by God to carry out that justice, but you and I as individuals have not been given it. Also, you'll notice within all of the texts that we've read, there is nothing there that limits what a human being is. It has nothing to do with vitality, with potentiality, or anything of the such. Such determinations cannot be factors for ending life. Only the shedding of another's blood, only violence is then paid back with violence and only then by authorized individuals. So then, the question quite clearly becomes something of a timing for us. There are some who do not believe this, but the vast, vast, vast majority of people in this world believe that a child is born and when that child is born, it is indeed human and worthy of life. There are monsters in this world who actually believe that it is okay to take the life of an infant, but we need not discuss them. The question then becomes, when does a human being become human? Is it when mom has chosen it to become a human? Is it at some point in between conception and birth? Some, somewhere along there, something mystical, something 
fantastic, something magical even happens to make a, a, a tissue, make cells, make an embryo into a human being? Or does it actually happen at birth? A number of different passages in Scripture talk about the fact that we have been knitted together in the womb by God. Job 31.15, Job asks the question, Did not he who made me in the womb make my servants? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Psalm 22 says, You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalm 139, for you have formed my inward parts, you have knitted me together in my mother's womb. Isaiah 44, first in verse 2 and then verse 24. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. You'll notice in all of those passages, this is, this is not simply the forming of a physical body. He's not saying, you formed my body in the womb, you knit my body together. There is an existential self in this. You have formed me. You have formed us in the womb. There is a person there. There is an entity there which is human. It isn't just a bunch of cells. This puts the biblical evidence for the ending of life clearly outside of any bounds that Roe v. Wade even cared to draw. Roe v. Wade's main problem was that it curtailed any ability to restrict abortions at any stage in the pregnancy, but the Bible clearly shows that God's handiwork is already seen before the child comes forth from the womb. A great example of this is from our own forerunner, John the Baptist. In Luke 1, Mary, six months, uh, less pregnant, I guess that doesn't work, but Elizabeth's been pregnant for six months, and then Mary comes to her while pregnant, and Elizabeth, who had conceived in her womb, has John the Baptist there. When she sees Mary, Elizabeth cries out to Mary, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And that, that baby experienced joy. He leapt for joy. He responded to a stimulus he was happy and joyful. I don't know how joyful a baby can be, but this one was pretty, pretty joyful. The question then becomes, not is it before birth, but then is it conception? So what we haven't done is spoken at all about, about how it is that we get from, okay, you're in the womb, it's a person, but when does that person begin to be a person? Is it at conception does it mystically happen at some point? Can we, can we point to anything at all that would indicate that it is actually conception that begins a human being? I would like to say that this is indeed something of a mystery, and the Bible does not answer this clearly. I would like to give you three things that will point out why I believe that thinking that life begins at conception is probably the best thing to consider. First, simply from logic. There doesn't seem to be any true starting point for the process of growth outside of conception. So fertilization of an egg is usually the thing that kicks everything off. The cells begin to divide, they replicate, they divide, 
We don't actually know how specialization, how certain cells become spinal cells, certain cells become heart cells. We don't really know exactly how that happens, but nevertheless, we do understand that that is a fairly normal process. The thing that seems to kick it all off is conception. From that moment on, the dominoes start to fall. That seems logically to indicate that that is the thing that makes this being special, that makes this being a being. There is no other marker outside of conception that begins that sort of process. There's no individual thing that happens in between the making of that embryo in conception and the birth of that child, which would be quite as significant as conception itself. Secondly, I would point to a specific and perhaps a rather odd understanding given to us in the book of Luke. We can, I think, at least piece this together biblically. In Luke 135, just before John the Baptist leaps for joy at the pregnant Mary coming forth, the angel of the Lord appears to Mary and tells her that you are going to give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus, and he will save his people. And Mary, who is wise, young but not born last night, understands that something is significantly missing here. And she asked the angel, how is this going to be? Because I've never known a man. Okay, so the, the issue for Mary is quite clearly conception. I've never known a man. I have not ever conceived in my, my womb. There's no chance for me to carry life because life is conceiving. Life is conception. The angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. I would offer to you that what the angel is answering is Mary's concern over conception. She's not asking about, when will this thing be a baby? She's not asking that question specifically. She's asking about conception. And the answer that is given is, he will be the Son of God from the moment that he is conceived because the answer comes over conception. There will be Mary's DNA there. It's important that her DNA is there. That DNA is the very thing that links Jesus back to David and to Abraham as he is prophesied to be in their line. Yet nevertheless, something unique and mysterious happens as the Holy Spirit overshadows her. This is what makes him Jesus. This is what makes him her son. The question is about conception, and the answer is given about conception. This is what makes him your son. Conception is the incarnation. Jesus is there. One cell conceived by the Holy Spirit through Mary. Lastly, even if those points don't do it for you, I would tell you that prudence would tell us to err on the side of caution. When it comes to issues of life and death, if we don't know where life begins, it would be extraordinarily prudent to not guess at some random point along the way. You say, well, 15 weeks sounds good. Well, six weeks sounds better. Well, the heart begins here and this begins there. What defines a human being? We don't know. So it is better to be conservative. And we do this all the time. We know that the state has the right to bear the sword. We put people on death row, knowing that they have been guilty of crimes that they deserve death from, according to the state. But even then, we would reserve the greatest caution in putting anyone to death. 
Because it is a tremendous thing, a grave thing to put someone to death. And even there, where we are almost certain that they are guilty of crimes, we're putting them to death. When one is innocent of all crimes, shouldn't we be all the more cautious? I mean, it seems that it is prudent. It seems that I think it's biblical. I think that it's logical for us to think that life begins at conception. And doesn't the law talk about this kind of thing? Why doesn't the law mention it? The law kind of does mention it. Only one time in Exodus 21. We'll read these verses because they're important because you'll come across people who want to misinterpret what is being said here. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, not, understand the, the context there, they're not striving to hit the pregnant woman together. They are fighting one another. And they, they accidentally hit a pregnant woman. I don't know how this happens, but nevertheless, the, the Bible is just using this as an example of something larger, I think, but nevertheless. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The question becomes, that little phrase, and her children come out. Does it mean that she gives birth to living children, or does it indicate that she has miscarried those children? Are the children dead? Many translations talk about the children being dead. The phrase doesn't actually mean that, though. The phrase is pretty wide. My guess is, and, and I would stand by this interpretation, I think that this is what makes the best sense, is that it's deliberately vague. Because one, it doesn't want to mention whether they died or whether they lived, but two, later on, when it talks about no further harm being done and what happens if other harm comes to pass, it isn't just about the children, or it's not just about the wife, but it's about everyone there. It's about the woman who bore the children and the children themselves. So there are times in which the children might come out dead, and therefore things need to be done to make recompense for that. Sometimes those children will be born alive, and they will be fine. But the mother will be hurt, and recompense needs to be made for that. When you come to the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, it doesn't actually mean that you take one for the other. What it does mean is that the law honestly desires that equal punishment for the crime be given. Not too much, not too little. Some come to this and say, well, what you see here is that if a pregnant woman is hit accidentally by two men who are fighting, and their children are miscarried, there's only a fine, they say. There's only a fine. And therefore, the Bible doesn't think of those babies as fully human. Okay. Even if, even if it means miscarried. We don't have what we would call flat-out murder here. We need to understand that the biblical law makes distinctions in between things that are murder and things that are manslaughter, things that happen on purpose and things that happen on accident. And in the case of things like manslaughter and in the case of accidental deaths, it doesn't require a life for that life. It just doesn't do it. So to say that because there's a fine here, 
means that these, these children are not considered as human beings is just bad biblical interpretation because elsewhere, the same kind of idea is, is applied to people who are full-grown human beings. The whole idea of cities of refuge are that people who have accidentally killed somebody else can run there to flee from vengeance that they think might be coming from other family members. It's not that they don't have to make reparation. It's not that they don't have to somehow do all they can to make it right. But it's still not their life. In the end of it all, I think it's fair to say this. The Bible states that the ending of a human life is only to be done in cases that are rightly authorized by God through the state or by God's own decree. Otherwise, such taking of a life is wrong and if it's purposeful, is an attempt to attack the very God of creation himself. It's clear that human beings are human beings inside and outside of the womb. And they are that way completely independently from any desire of the mother or any other human being declaring them to be that. They are by God's design. He has made them. Therefore, they are human and it is probably, and I would also add certainly in my judgment, best to think that life begins at conception. That is what I think the Bible teaches about abortion. Let's move on to point two then. This is going to be incredibly brief. We're just going to talk about the church and abortion. I want to make it very clear. While this issue has come up in the middle to latter part of the 20th century. There was a good reason why the church was very quiet on this for a long, long time. And that's because from the time of Constantine, generally speaking, up into more recent years, the church has ruled and the morality of the church has ruled over public opinion so that abortion was seen as abhorrent and would have been treated as abhorrent. In the first century, Christian writers, or first, second through fifth century, Christian writers were not so silent on it. It wasn't the, the, the ire that it is today for Christian theologians, but nevertheless, they mention it repeatedly and varied throughout the times. Athenagoras of Athens in the second century writes about it and repels and is rejecting any sense that abortion is okay. Tertullian in the second century Jerome in the 4th, Ambrose in the 4th, Basil in the 4th, Chrysostom in the 5th. All of them take on the issue of abortion in passing and simply note that it is murder. This is not a new position the church has acquired. It is an age-old position. Chrysostom goes so far as to say that abortion is worse than murder because the child was not even born it was purely innocent of all bad deeds. Third, let's then talk about crossway and abortion. Let's talk about you and I and how we ought to think through and handle the issues that come from the decision of Dobbs. As we said before, more heat than light has been generated through this. I hope that I can, I can give some light to it and how we ought to respond to these things through basically just a couple of objections that I have heard from people make uh, and, and how we ought to not only respond to those objections, but how we, ought to, how we ought to live in light of those objections. The first one concerns mothers. The objection is that Christians, especially those who are pro-life Christians, don't truly care about the life of the mother, which is linked also to the idea that we are truly pro-birth, we're not actually pro-life. 
Tackle the first thing first. We don't care about the life of the mother. Many politicians have seized on poorly written laws in places like Louisiana and Missouri, which do not give exemptions to the life of the mother for things like ectopic pregnancies, which have no viability either for the child and will at times kill the mother. They give no opportunity to abort that child. These laws are bad and wrong. There's bad medicine and they're bad policy. That child will never reach a vital stage. It is not viable. It will die. The only thing that is for certain, the only thing that's flipped that up in the air is whether the mother will live or not. In that case, abortion is necessary and it ought to be allowed. States have written these things into laws, probably because lawmakers don't know what they're talking about. The vast majority of the time, they're caught and they're changed. We ought to say that it needs to be, in order to give this exemption, it must be a true threat to the life of the mother, not a threat to the mother's ill-defined well-being, whether it's financially or economically or uh, her emotional well-being or whatever the case might be. It has to be a true threat to the life of the mother. I don't craft laws. I don't teach medicine. So I, I don't know exactly how to craft those things. It's not my skill set. But there are, God knows, people out there who can do those things. And there will certainly be gray areas where horrific decisions have to be made. When the life of the mother and the life of the child are either both in jeopardy, one of them is in jeopardy because of the other one, they're uniquely entwined together. We can't be black and white on issues like that. We can be black and white on saying, listen, I wanted to go to college and this kid's gonna keep me from it. Black and white. Absolutely no. I'm going to die possibly if I bring this child to full term is a different set of circumstances altogether. Those decisions, I would suggest, ought not be made by state legislatures. When laws are drafted that have poor language in them, we should oppose them, even if they have meaningful legislation in them that we want. And chances are that they will get fixed, but we, we cannot stand by putting the lives of women in danger for things that will not provide the good for the life of the child. Again, let me be very clear. I'm talking about situations where the life of the mother is not kind of sort of at risk, but definitely at risk in taking that child full term. And let us remember alongside of that that abortion does not map completely onto other forms of murder. If I refrain from murdering the blokes who are firing off fireworks at 11.45 a week after the 4th of July, I am not physically enduring anything but sound and light. I am enduring perhaps the waking up of my children, my dog being frightened, but I'm not enduring anything else. Typically, when you don't murder somebody, you are not physically bearing anything. This is not the case for women. Women are called on to do much more than this. We, we can rightly scoff at the idea that their body is only of importance to them and to the one to whom it belongs. When they say, my body, my choice. Well, that, that, is, that is ridiculous. I mean, we all live in a society 
Like, it's just not true that you can do whatever you want to with your body. You can't flash people. That's illegal. It's your body, but you can't treat it in any way you want to when you're out in public. We don't allow people to put any drugs they want to in their body. We rightly legislate that stuff because we think it's bad for society. We just went through a pandemic. We know that there are pandemics that are worse than that. What happens when this isn't COVID? What happens when it's a full-born plague? Do we think it's okay for people just to infect other people because they're callously treating their bodies? I would think not. Because we live in a society, your body is not wholly your own, even if many rights over your person are rightly afforded to you. But we need to remember that in these situations, we are not just asking for women to put up with something. We're not just asking for them to endure emotionally through this, but we're asking them to go through something that short of death is likely the most traumatic thing a human body will ever go through. And that's not just birth. Ask for stories of women who have had horrid pregnancies. Pregnancies themselves will physically affect a woman and put them through toil and turmoil. We would do well to remember that and therefore seek to give aid and help to anyone who's in that position. And we would also do well to remember, given how many women are being tempted and sold into lies, who ought to know better. It's not just that they are accountable. They are indeed accountable for the things that they've done. But they are also victims of a world that screams at them and tells them that this is right and this is good. They are entrapped and they are victims of those very lies. This means that they deserve and ought to have placed before them the gospel. That while they are wrong in their decisions, while their decisions are evil, nevertheless, this is not the unpardonable sin. There is redemption. There is help for them. This is the very reason why Jesus Christ came was to forgive people for the things that they've done, especially when they have been led astray by a culture and by a world which has been twisted and uglied by Satan himself. So those who believe and trust that Jesus died for their sins are forgiven, whether they've committed abortion or whether they haven't. And what's more, if we believe in that gospel, if we truly believe in the gospel, then we ought to live it out. I feel like so many people are tempted when it comes to the issue of abortion to say, well, you know, they were the ones who got themselves knocked up. They were the ones who got themselves pregnant. This isn't my issue. It's not my problem. They ought to carry that baby and whatever happens to them might happen to them. Let them deal with their own things. Brothers and sisters, ought that never to come from the mouth of a Christian? Because I guarantee you, that you will not be standing in front of your God and creator and saying the same thing about yourself. This is the whole point of the gospel. The whole point is that you don't do that. You don't bear your own sins. You don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Christ does it for you. So why, when it comes to single mothers who have made bad decisions, do we feel, or not even that made bad decisions, who had, who had husbands leave them. We'll get to dads here in a second. 
Why do we feel like we, we can just look at them and be like, well, you're the one who made these awful decisions. You, you don't deserve help and, and mercy and care. No, they don't. They don't. That's why it's called grace and mercy. If we believe that Jesus did that for us, we at least ought to do it for those who are the least and the weakest in our society because he has commanded us to do that. So don't be a hypocrite. If you believe the gospel, help women. Help women, help babies, help families. Give them comfort in their distress. Give them everything they would need, whether it's direct help from you by your very person being there, by the money that you happen to give to them, or whether it's by entrusting that the state is going to intercede for them. Whatever the means be, they need help, they need aid, and we ought to be the ones who give it to them. We don't just care about the life of the baby. We do care about the life of the mother. Secondly, let's talk about dads. One of the chief things you hear is, well, Christian, if you're all about this, I don't know why people talk like this in my head, but that's how they sound. If you're gonna, if you're gonna talk like this, we gotta hold dads accountable. Are you ready to hold dads? Yes! Yes! Yeah, we're ready to hold dads accountable. We're ready, pass the laws. If you impregnate a woman, you're responsible to take care of that child. Absolutely. I mean, this isn't the 18th century. We've got DNA. We can figure it out. It's not a problem. Do we want to hold dads accountable? Absolutely. Hold them accountable. But at the same time, let's help those dads be better dads. Let's do all we can to teach, to disciple, to make sure that we are the best dads that we can be, and so we can model that for other people. And while we're on the subject, let's Let's do everything we can to fight the picture that is being presented about children and their parents. Because the main ammunition that the abortion lobby has is that the thing that is growing in the womb of a woman is an anchor. It's not really a child. It is an anchor that will steadily grow throughout your life and that you'll be dragging along and that your freedom will be hurt by it. Your finances will be hurt by it. Your fun will be hurt by it. Such rubbish. Now, I said I was going to be truthful. Just be truthful. Not everything about being a parent is bliss. Granted, my kids are better than most, and there are still days when I feel like I'm just getting punched in the face. And every once in a while, if Isaac doesn't hit me in the shoulder quite right, I might get punched in the face. Nevertheless, children are worth every minute. It's fine to complain about kids in passing. Spend more of your time talking about what a joy and a blessing they are. Because the world only wants to look at children as though they're difficult they're harassing to your life. They, they drag down everything and they are not a blessing. Basically, they're painting them the way the Bible paints curses. The Bible never calls them a curse. They're never a curse. So let us stop talking like they are. Let us stop buying into that like they are. Let's establish a different baseline when it comes to pregnancy. Instead of having women think that they're going to the Russian gulag of pregnancy, let us talk about the blessing, the absolute blessing that children are. Let us talk how the Bible talks about them. Children are accepted and loved by Christ. 
He loves children. Let them come to me, that they are precious in his sight, that grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Children are a blessing. Let us talk and act like that is so. We ought to rejoice that Roe v. Wade's been overturned. We have much work to do. I think we've got a lot of work to do politically and legislatively, but I think that there's more important work specifically for Crossway to do. We are to be all that the church was meant to be, a safe haven for those in need, a welcoming and life-giving place, a shelter for the vulnerable and weak, and an embodiment of Jesus on the earth, a living demonstration of the goodness and the work and the charity of the gospel. So we must be more than pro-life simply in the way that we vote. If your pro-lifeness is simply every four years voting for a certain type of candidate, you need to do better. You just frankly need to do better. Because Scripture calls on you to do better. Get involved. Seek to volunteer at women's shelters and at places like Life Clinic. Seek to assist families in need. Listen, if you know of a family who is poor, who's going through a difficult time. If you know of single moms who have needs, they've got things that need to be repaired around their house, reach out to us. Reach out to Gary. Gary is our deacon of missions. Give him those things. Say, I've got a a woman who's got some some plumbing problems. We we don't know how to get it fixed. Well, okay, she doesn't have money to get it fixed. We've got men in this, this church who are capable of doing that kind of stuff. We've got men in this church who are capable of paying for that kind of stuff. Let's do it. Let's do the things that are required of us to be pro-life and more than simply the way we vote. Seek to be a big brother or a big sister to children in need. Seek to help those in foster care, whether it's helping families who do foster care or being a family that does foster care yourself. You get to be thankful that this battle has been won. It's a good, good, good thing. But be reminded that war will always go on. And put out of your mind this moment, the idea that we are someday going to reach an end to this war. There is one end to this war because this war is not about the laws of the United States. It's not about making a better society. There is one end to this war and that is the return of Jesus Christ to set all things right. So, You need to persevere. You need to love people. You need to hold fast to the faith. You need to walk in line with the gospel and grace and in peace and pray for the return of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, help us to be the body of Christ here on earth. You have called us to this. Let us embrace the challenge and the glory of it with all that we have. For we know that darkness is overcome in our Lord. So let us show by our lives that we truly believe that. Let not our fear nor our base desires interfere with your glorious work. Save the lives and souls of men, women, and unborn children in this world through our efforts. For our good and especially for your glory. Amen. Song of response this morning is worthy of worship. Please stand and sing with us.